welcome to Creative Piecemeal Podcast, a podcast for creatives. I'm your host, Tammy Takeishi. Join me for compelling conversations with artists, actors, authors, musicians, and other creatives about the impact of the creative and fine arts in their lives and our ever-changing world. Thank you for listening. and welcome to Creative Piecemeal Podcast. I'm your host, Tammy Takeishi. Today I'm joined by one of my fellow colleagues and mentors, music therapist, Dr. Andrew Rossetti. He supervises the multi-site music therapy program in radio oncology at the Louis Armstrong Center for Music and Medicine at Mount Sinai Beth Israel Health System. His practice also extends to the infusion suite, surgery, and the neonative intensive care unit and he specializes in treating emotional trauma and its sequelae. Having developed several music therapy programs in hospitals in the United States and Europe, he has extensively lectured there in South America and Asia. He also received his doctorate at the University of... Uvascula. Uvascula. Oh, that's a beautiful name, Uvascula. For those of you joining us who may not be as familiar with music therapy, which is Um, Dr. Rossetti and my profession. It is the clinical and evidence-based use of music therapy interventions to accomplish goals within a therapeutic relationship by a credentialed professional who's completed an approved music therapy program. It is just a wonderful profession and we really enjoy it. And so we're excited to talk about music therapy and welcome to the show, Dr. Rossetti. Thank you so much, Tammy. It's really great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a been a long time. Lots of really great memories yes. uh, of our of our time together at the Armstrong Center for Music and Medicine. Yes, very much, very much. Since then, you've been up to many many things. You know, the program has expanded, and you you and the team have done lectures around the world. But before we get to that, I was wondering if we could backtrack and who or what inspired you to put become a musician, and then later a music therapist? Big questions. I've always, ever since I was a very young child, I've I've, uh, always been really passionate about music and making music. Music was part of my uh, family's culture. My mom was a a huge opera aficionado, and she uh, she used to play opera pretty much all day, Saturday and Sunday and weekends. So that was was one of my first exposures to music. Uh, Also... One of my grandfathers was a weekend jazz musician, and uh, so there was a there was a lot of encouragement on on uh, on his part uh, to become a musician. I and I started actually studying clarinet in grammar school. Uh, it was I was really lucky that uh, where I grew up, music was part of the part of the, the curriculum, and so my f- my first instrument was uh, was the clarinet. You know, the clarinet's a wonderful instrument, but it was it wasn't. I had this sound in my head, and I, I couldn't quite figure out what it was. And and uh, as it turned out, the first time I heard a recording of uh, what was identified as a classical guitar uh, suite, uh, that you know, it just hit me. It's like that's the sound. I actually used to dream of of uh, the sound that I couldn't identify. And as it turned out, uh, I was a classical guitar. So 
Uh, from very young, I became absolutely obsessed with the guitar and uh, spent many, many hours uh, in, in my room just uh, practicing away. Yeah, it, it wasn't, uh, wasn't that much of a, uh, of a stretch to realize early on that what I, what I wanted to do as a profession, what I wanted to do with my life, had, had to do with music and the guitar. And so um, I pretty much uh, pursued that through all the steps of uh, a guy of my, my generation of the 60s uh, kind of went through, which was uh, through playing what was called then soul music, what, what we call R&B now, I guess. And uh, that changed over to rock, and the rock mutated into jazz and classical. I ended up uh, studying guitar. And so to tie into what, you know, what influenced me to become a music therapist is at the same time, I always had really, really strong, almost an obsession for psychology and, and the, the workings of the human mind. That was something that, that I, I, I always read about, studied about, even, even when I was a kid. And uh, that, that became part of the mix. It wasn't until later on in life that I actually uh, discovered that there was something uh, called music therapy. That happened uh, while I was living in Spain. I, I lived in Spain for uh, 35 years. I've been back in the States for about, uh, uh, it'll be 12 years soon. I actually, I was a, uh, a professional musician. I had a career that overlapped jazz and, and, uh, and classical performance. It, uh, at one point, I, I uh, received a phone call uh, from someone in, in Barcelona, which was where I lived, uh, to see if I'd be interested in teaching in a, in a music therapy master's program. And I had no idea uh, what, the, what that was. Fortunately, when I was able to find out a little bit about it and talked into uh, teaching in that program, it was an absolute life changer. You know, and I, I can't be more grateful uh, for the people involved in that process. Part of that was I taught in the program, uh, which was a fledgling program at the time. was really lucky that I got to meet quite a few um, prominent music therapists that came into lecture. And one of those people was Dr. DeForia Lane. And uh, DeForia is an absolutely amazing human being, a stellar therapist and, and, and a stellar person. And uh, in the week that she was there teaching in Barcelona, she sort of took me under her wing. And, and uh, I really got a great close-up look at what music therapy could be about. And uh, that, that's, what, that's what inspired me to actually, to actually get my master's in, in uh, music therapy, which I did in Barcelona. So rather long roundabout answer to your first question. Oh, that's wonderful, though. It's great that you had that early passion for guitar and you were able to connect with that instrument literally of your dreams you know, and then be able to continue yeah. utilizing it in, in a field that you are doing so wonderfully in and just making amazing achievements and accomplishments. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Very generous. Thanks. Listeners, for those of you who may not know, Dr. Rossetti has done quite a few research projects. And so if you're into reading some really cool music therapy articles, you can Google and check those out. He's got some some pieces in various medical and music therapy journals to check out. So regarding the fact that, of course, you found your your like sole instrument, the guitar, but if you could play any other instrument, what do you think it would be? Like, what would you want to play? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I love the sound of the bassoon. Ooh, nice. 
love the sound of the cello. When I was uh, at conservatory studying, uh, had had cello as a secondary instrument. Not a good combination to, to try and combine those, uh, the technique of that instrument and the technique of classical guitar. Uh, so I never really, I never really got to play cello as as well as I would have wished. But uh, cello is an instrument that I that I wish that I could uh, that I could play better. And of course, piano. You know, I'm I'm not a very proficient pianist. If I had it, you know, time to do that over again, I would I'd certainly study piano more than I did. It's one of those things where um, where there's just so many so many beautiful instruments, so many beautiful pieces. It's like, where do you, where do you start? You know, where do you go? The other thing is that the guitar is not a, not an orchestral instrument usually, except for uh, uh, you know for uh, concertos that have been written for it. And I've been, I've been lucky enough to uh, play quite a bit of chamber music uh, to play with small chamber orchestras and things like that. But uh, one of the, one of the things that I did miss about uh, not it was not being able to play uh, classical music in, in an orchestra in any uh, on any regular basis. Uh, that was different with jazz, of course, because you know. Guitar is an integral part of, of many of the jazz idioms, right? So, but I always had that. If I could uh, have have a wish granted, it would be uh, to be able to play an orchestral instrument. Since you do a lot of research, what is one of the biggest sectors of music therapy that you are curious about right now? If you're able to talk about any any of the research you're doing at at the moment. Sure, uh, things that I'm interested in. I'd have to say I'm really interested in the, you know, the neurological area of things. There's lots and lots of work that's being done right now, lots and lots of studies, really good studies, clean, uh, well-designed studies that are looking at uh, neurological responses of, of listening to music, neurological responses of different types of music therapy interventions, music and medicine interventions, so that's something that, that, uh, that of course, uh, I find fascinating. One of the areas that, I, that I'm also very interested in is uh, actually the, the difference between music and medicine and, and uh, music therapy. And that is something that I am, that I am very actively involved in. Uh, a lot of that is through the uh, International Association for Music and Medicine, which is a, a wonderful entity. Um, if your listeners are, are not aware of uh, that entity, I, I would encourage them to check it out. I, I happen to be the, the secretary for the, uh, the executive committee for the board of directors. Started, initiated an ethics committee there that I co-chair with uh, another colleague, uh, Maya Artis, who's a music therapist as well. And so, uh, yeah, that's one of, one of the areas that I'm, of research that I'm very, very interested in. In as well as uh, you know, contrasting music therapy and music and medicine. As far as studies that I'm in, involved in, uh, I'm involved in a, in a number of them at this point. Uh, right now, I just finished up a study in environmental music therapy in oncology waiting rooms. That is has been submitted to a journal, to a music therapy journal, and, and uh, we're waiting to uh, to see when that gets published. We completed another. Uh, study recently another environmental music therapy in the uh, in the SICU, a also feasibility study for virtual music psychotherapy in substance use groups, and that's through the Institute of Family Health at the Icon School of Medicine. Also, we have a, a study that's uh, going on another virtual music therapy uh, study in home listening, 
uh, for people with uh, moderate cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's, and a study uh, that we're carrying out in the uh, the NICU with neonates, and that's with neonates with uh, abstinence syndrome. So uh, quite a mix of, of uh, different things. As you heard, a couple of studies that are looking at, at uh, virtual interventions, the feasibility of uh, virtual interventions, what their their efficacy might be as, as opposed to uh, to on-site, you know, face-to-face. Another project that is not quite a research project uh, yet at this point was uh, we put together a, um, a program for treating vicarious trauma uh, for, for hospital staff members. The program is called PATHS. That is something that, that uh, uh, we started with a couple of months into COVID-1 that we started and, and is still very much still, still going on now. That's a little bit of the research, some of the projects I'm involved in, but I, I do, as, as you might remember, spend most of my time uh, in radiation oncology, multi-site at this point. There are a number of small projects that have, that have developed out of, out of that practice, and one of them is a long-term music psychotherapy program for women who have uh, received uh, treatment for breast cancer, radiation therapy for breast cancer. That's actually becoming uh, a little a little bit of a thing. Uh, so I have quite a quite a few patients uh, that are that are involved in that project as well. Very nice. It definitely sounds like the pandemic has sort of sprouted some new interests in research. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, I mean the the in research and and uh, I, I mean the the reason for that very obviously is is that. Uh, Especially during COVID one, there was a there was a, a time, uh, probably about six months, I think, that we were doing almost exclusively virtual work, and you know, trying to f- figure out as as we were doing it, as we were implementing the the uh, the programs and the projects, uh, trying to figure out how to do it because uh, there there's a very specific set of challenges uh, that come up with using uh, virtual media like like uh, Zoom as we're using as opposed to, uh, to face-to-face work. We're actually writing a, uh, writing a book that is uh, being overseen by uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. John Montanaro, that uh, Dr. Joanne Lowy is also involved in. Uh, and we are uh, writing ab- about how, how COVID uh, has changed uh, medical music uh, psychotherapy practice. One of the interesting things uh, that, that came up is just the, the the physical difference of seeing it, seeing a patient uh, with all of the you know that that really complex uh, PPE that we were using at the time, you know double masks and the the visor and the gloves and the the whole nine yards. Uh, just writing about how that made some really profound changes in the whole process uh, of implementing and 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 using the therapeutic relationship. That sounds. Very interesting, and I'm sure it will be quite enlightening once the book is done. I, I look forward to picking that up for sure. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we're, we're really uh, looking forward to, to actually finishing it. That's always the tough part, f- finishing the books. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, same thing with studies. Initiating them is the easiest part, really. And uh, it's actually getting getting all the work done and, and uh, you know, Crossing your T's, dotting your I's. So you recently were featured in the New York Times 
which was a very lovely article. And, you know, people were able to see a little bit more about music therapy in the city and what you do in the oncology suite. Did that bring about more awareness to music therapy? Do you feel like people sort of sought out music therapy for themselves as a as a treatment for a variety of things because of that? I honestly, I don't really know what the impact of, um, of the article was. There have been people who have reached out, you know, saying we, we, you know, we saw, we saw the article and, uh, and we're interested in, in, uh, you know, fill in the blank, whatever, whatever it was that they're, that they're interested in. I, I don't know the actual um, scope of, of the impact of the article other than I imagine that uh, anything that that uh, and you know of course the the title of the article is I I didn't get to choose the title which was uh, for me was was really ironic because the the uh, title is the healing power of music this is something that uh, you might even remember f- uh, from from your internship that I you know I was pretty emphatic about the idea is, is that uh, you know there, there's no empirical evidence that music directly heals anything, right? It could, it, of course, we know that it can be very effectively used in, in uh, processes and therapeutic processes to help, with, to help with healing, to foster healing. But this idea of like music directly healing something is, is just not hard science at this point. And that's the title of the article. So that particular, you know, the healing power of music is something that I, I know that grabs people's attention. So I, I imagine, that, you know, probably quite a few people read it. And, and uh, it's a, I think it's a well-written article that, uh, that it probably did contribute to raising a, awareness and, and maybe giving people a little bit more of an accurate idea of what music therapy is and, and maybe what it isn't. I didn't hear about music therapy until my collegiate years. And I'm sure for, for many people in the profession, they sort of come to it a little bit later in life. True. Yeah. That's my case as well. I was wondering what advice do you have for those going into music therapy? Like if you could only pick one thing to tell people, what would you say? Read. Well, that's, that's the one word, you know, but what's behind that idea is that, you know, music therapists, we, on the one hand, we're so incredibly lucky that we get to draw on this very wide palette of, of resources, music being, music being one of them, psychotherapy being another, right? And different modalities of therapy being, being other things that we can draw on. There is so much to know that at times it seems like we, we would need at least two lifetimes to become good music therapists. I mean, obviously the music skills are really important, which is for me is a, a, a real issue. Um, music skills, but there are so many other areas of practice of uh, of theory that can be brought into music therapy very, very effectively. It just takes a lot of time to find out and learn to find out about all this stuff and then learn it. I think if I you know were to give uh, uh, beginning music therapy students any advice, it would be to read as much as you possibly can, and not just music therapy not just reading about music therapy, but reading about all the parallels that, that, are, you know, that we're able to incorporate into the practice of music therapy. If you've been feeling burned out, stressed, 
overwhelmed, or exhausted, the resources and courses at the Self-Care Institute are here to support you. The Self-Care Institute was founded by Dr. Ami Kunimura and provides support for individuals and organizations with burnout prevention, burnout recovery, and stress management. I've personally taken a few of these courses and found them to be super helpful, both professionally and personally. The care you give yourself matters just as much as the care you give to others. But if self-care is difficult for you, you're not alone. And the Self-Care Institute is here to support your well-being, resilience, and sense of fulfillment at work and at home. For more information, visit selfcareinstitute.com or go to the show notes and click on the link. Excellent advice. I remember when we got to internship at the Louis Armstrong Center that you all gave us a big old packet of reading. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> right. And that was that was just the starter, right? Yes. Yeah. I still have all those articles. They're very, very helpful. Regarding books, sort of a fun question here. Of the books you've read recently, what's one that has inspired you? one that has challenged you and one that has kept you turning pages. Hmm. Okay. So, uh, inspiring books. There's a book that is, the title is cancer, the emperor of all maladies, a biography of cancer. And that's by an oncologist uh, named Siddhartha Mukherjee. For me, that was a, that book was a real game changer. Just the way that, uh, um, that this gentleman, wrote about uh, wrote about cancer, which is a which is a, a very, very complex set of, of diseases. It, you know, it's written mostly in layman's language, but there's a there's enough specific technical language in there to to, to keep me engaged in that book. So that's something uh, that that uh, I think was a, a very worthwhile book to read and uh, something that that uh, Probably changed the way the way I practice a bit. Certainly contributed to to what I think I might know about oncology. Okay, so book that I found challenging and at the same time absolutely necessary was the Polyvagal Theory by Dr. Stephen Porges. And uh, I've I've done a lot of lot of studying of uh, polyvagal uh, theory, and it is absolutely was absolutely a game changer for me changed the whole way that I practiced music therapy and the way that I thought about therapy uh, in and of itself. Uh, since I've been very lucky to, uh, uh, to have a nice professional relationship with, with Dr. Porges, um, we've actually written together, co-edited a, uh, an issue of the uh, Journal of Music and Medicine together. Absolutely love his work. It is very, very dense, challenging, hard science. And uh, one of the reasons that I think it's so important is that polyvagal theory, among many other things, gives us a hard science justification for the clinical use of music. So for a music therapist, um, I think that that's a big deal. Um, other books that I, that I uh, uh, think would be uh, good additions to reading, social worker Deborah Dana uh, has written a couple of books on clinical applications of the polyvagal theory. Those are very helpful. I found them very helpful, and, and uh, I know many people have, uh, because Deb is able to sort of 
uh, sift through some of the some of the trickier parts of understanding, you know, how the how the uh, the vagus uh, influences the autonomic nervous system, and she's put it in very very usable uh, terms and for clinical applications. So I I guess I'd start off with those three. That sounds fantastic. I'm definitely going to look those up too. So this next one might be like a hard question because it's always hard to pinpoint something like this. But if you had introduction music or a theme song to your life, what would that be? House of the Rising Sun? No, probably not. I'm just joking around. <laughs> so introduction music or, a th- or, or like a theme song. Gee, that, you know, that actually is a really rough one. I think maybe the Sarah band from the first Bach cello suite might be something I just absolutely totally resonate with that piece of music. It's something that I just uh, love playing. I love listening to it. I've listened to many different uh, versions of it at this point. There's so many, so many songs from uh, uh, Pat Metheny's catalog that I think would probably, uh, I probably really like uh, to have one of those be sort of uh, representative, you know, of, of uh, I don't know who I am, what I think. All excellent songs and pieces for sure. You've talked a lot about music therapy, um, not just on this interview, but, you know, in your life and you do lectures and conferences and presentations. What is one common stereotype about music therapy that you've run into in, in your work so far? Yeah, I think I I think I'd uh, have to repeat what I what I just said. Uh, this idea of uh, the of the healing power of music, that you know, this idea that somehow I'm going to play a piece of music and it is going to uh, almost miraculously land on the problem and and just uh, you know dissolve it, kind of like sprinkling fairy dust. When you know any any sort of therapy, any sort of psychotherapy, especially is such a, such a complex process that has so many different steps that, that it, you know, it does music therapy an injustice by just sort of falling back on this very, very gratuitous idea that, uh, you know, I'm going to play music and somehow the music is going to fix everything. Music can certainly contribute to that process. There's no doubt about that. But it is very much, at least in my mind, about a, about a process, about a therapeutic process. Therapy is not just a you know one-off shot in the dark that fixes everything. Do you have a favorite memory of your time as a music therapy student or professional that you're able to share? That's difficult because I, because I think I have a bunch of them. When I did find out about music therapy and when when I uh, was studying my masters and uh, got to do my uh, my clinical internship. I was, I, you know, I, I literally couldn't have been happier. It just seemed like uh, amazing that I was being allowed to, uh, to, you know, to do this wonderful thing and, and, uh, and, and work with people and, and, uh, and try to help people. Yeah, I don't know. There are just lots of, lots of uh, scenarios that pop up in my mind about, about my uh, clinical internship, which was uh, in Barcelona, Spain. And uh, it was in a um, inpatient... Uh, acute psychiatric facility, closed unit. Yeah, they had, they really, they had no idea what music therapy was and what it wasn't. And uh, that turned out to be uh, something that, that would wonderfully in my, my favor, 
because my, my supervisors were a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and two psychiatric nurses. And as, as I said, they had no idea what music therapy was and what it wasn't. So every morning we'd have rounds and uh, they would ask me to describe what, what interventions I was going to do and with which patients. And so literally they, they, were, they would let me do anything as long as I was able to explain its clinical validity, right? And so um, I, got to, I got to be very creative and try out many things that maybe in other contexts or those opportunities wouldn't have arisen. If it made clinical sense, they would let me do it. If they thought it didn't make clinical sense, uh, there was no way that I was going to you know, be allowed to, uh, to do that. So I, I, I think uh, some of the most memorable moments have to do with uh, interventions that I, that I was uh, trying out with that, that particular uh, cohort of patients, which, which were uh, people who were pretty much getting, uh, getting their uh, loading doses and uh, in the process of, of getting stabilized, right? It sounds like it must have been a, a really impactful time in your life and also very intense because you, like you said, you got to get creative and think outside the box. Yeah, at times it felt like there was no box, actually, but sure. Yeah, I, th- I thought, you know, uh, when I think back on it, it was really one of the, one of the most rewarding times of, of my life as, as a therapist. What do you wish you'd known when you first started your music therapy journey? Uh, that there was much more to learn than I could ever possibly do. I, I feel like that's, that's something many of us, many of us wish we had known. <laughs> Not, be, not because I would have uh, not entered music therapy, but I, I think I might have approached some things at the beginning of that process a little differently uh, than I did. It's such a wonderfully deep and diverse field. So it really does feel like, you know, we're always learning, always learning, always growing. That's true. And that's actually uh, one, of the, one of the wonderful things, one of the things that I feel so, so very lucky that uh, this is still very, very much for me, very much a learning process. At one point, many, many years ago, I had a private grant to study classical guitar in Spain, which is how I, I went there in the first place. And I remember in an interview uh, saying that, that they asked me what my goals were. And I said that one of my goals was to, uh, to be a student for the rest of my life. I, I think that uh, in a way that I've been, I've been really fortunate that that is still the case. Uh, not that I'm, you know, limited to just uh, being a student, but uh, in a very, in a very real sense, uh, still a student of uh, music therapy and and uh, psychotherapy as well. Excellent. So, a fun question for you: What is one of your favorite Broadway shows that you've seen? Oh, Broadway shows. Uh, Rent would be one of them. I've seen that a bunch of times. Uh, I saw it in New York City, I saw it in London, I saw it in Barcelona, and was able to see it with my kids as well, which was uh, something that I, that I really... Wicked uh, is another one. Jagged Little Pill, which I saw recently, I thought was fantastic as well. I'm a, I, I love Broadway, and uh, I'm really thrilled that Broadway's back, you know, in New York. You know, living in the city, you get an opportunity to check that out, and the Met, and the Symphony, and there's just a wealth of performance opportunities that can, you know, rejuvenate and inspire you. 
Absolutely. Yeah. New York City is a, is an amazing place. You know, even even uh, through COVID, it was still uh, an amazing place as it is now. If you could have dinner with any creative person, dead or alive, who would it be? Okay. I mean, yeah, Tammy, this is a really difficult question because, you know, so many people, I mean, I absolutely adore box music. I think it would have been, you know, it'd be incredible to be able to meet him. Let's see who else. I don't know. Sigmund Freud, of course, young Mozart, you know, to see if he actually had Tourette's or not. That would be interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a really, really, really very long list. I don't know. Buddha would be amazing. Christ. It's always hard to just pick a few people. You bet. One final question for you, back on the serious end. It's in your own words, what does living a creative life mean to you? Uh, what does living a creative life mean to me? Having a context that allows one to actually use their creativity in a constructive way. So in my my particular case, what what that translates to is where does the therapeutic process go? What's the path it takes? What are what are the 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 left and right turns that it takes in the context of working with very, very vulnerable and fragile people receiving treatment for cancer. So being able to make what are hopefully creative choices in that process, I think is, uh, you know, paramount. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Dr. Rossetti, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing more about yourself and the wonderful work that you do in the New York City area. Uh, thank you, Tammy. It's been great. It's great to see you again. It's wonderful to have a conversation, even though it's over Zoom. Still really great. Great to see you. Thank you. And listeners, please check the show notes to learn more about the Louis Armstrong Center for Music and Medicine at Mount Sinai Beth Israel and other great music therapy links. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Like the show? Have a question? Stop by the Facebook and Instagram pages. Links are in the show notes or search for Creative Piecemeal Podcast on social media and click follow for all the latest.